Uh, today's sermon text is from Luke 20, 20 through 26 and verses 45 through 47. So they watched him and sent spies who preached to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Verses 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast who devour widows houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is God's word. Amen. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are beautiful. Lord, our hearts don't often believe that. Our hearts often drift away from you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, just as we sang and we prayed, that we would remember that you are the cup that never, ever, ever runs dry. I pray that today, me and these people in front of me would come together and fellowship over your word. I don't stand above them. I stand with them. And we all stand looking at you and gazing at you. And we say, Lord, teach us. Show us your ways. Fill us with your spirit. Change us. In your name we pray. The name of Jesus. Amen. 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 This is a um, pretty risky conversation or interaction that Jesus had with these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, these religious leaders. Um, It seems like in this text that Jesus is endorsing Caesar, who's the emperor of the empire of Rome, an empire that spans the known world and includes Israel, the promised land, the land inhabited by God's chosen people, And Jesus finds himself teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders in Israel send in spies who pretend like they're followers of Jesus. They pretend that they find Jesus' teachings compelling and authoritative and true. But they're sent there to ask questions, to make comments, to try to get Jesus in trouble. We'll get Jesus in trouble with who? This is an empire. This is led by an emperor. If there was any hint in this little corner of the Roman Empire that there was a revolutionary who was trying to stir up strife and insurgence against the Roman Empire, that person immediately was condemned to death and death on a cross. The reason why the Romans used the cross 
was so that it would send a message to everyone around that if you object or protest to our rule in your world, this will happen to you. You will die a violent, gruesome, and bloody death. And so these men have come in. They've sneaked into Jesus' teaching. And they ask this question. This question that's full of energy and emotion and raw passion, hatred, anger, political intrigue. They're asking these questions. And it almost seems like Jesus is endorsing Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. Rome occupying the promised land. It's interesting, that little coin, that denarius that was given to Jesus had these words inscribed on it. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. This was what the coin said that Jesus examined. This coin meant, the coin that they were supposed to use in Israel was meant to humiliate them. You now live in our economy. You are part of us. You are an extension of Rome. You are no longer a sovereign nation that exists with your own laws and your own rights. Not only that, not only does that coin say that Caesar has authority over the Jews, but he has divine authority over the Jews. He says, I am the son of an emperor who has gone on to be a god. I am the son of a god. And this is the coin that Jesus was given. If we lived in that day, we, it would have absolutely repulsed us. The thought that we serve the son of God and another person imposes his authority on us, claiming to be a competitor and even better than our Jesus. Crazy. And so Jesus' response, render to Caesar what Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. What did Jesus meant? What did Jesus mean when he said that? Was Jesus saying that politics is a separate sphere from religion? Was he saying that God rules over the sphere of politics and humankind rules over the sphere, I'm sorry, God rules over spirituality and humankind rules over the sphere of politics and so let humankind have their thing and I'll have my thing. What you need to figure, what you need to get squared away is reading your Bible and praying and going to synagogue or going to church. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus saying that I don't care about politics? Was Jesus saying, hey, I'm apolitical. These issues aren't, are irrelevant to me. They're not important. Inconsequential. Because this is a popular view that's growing in our world. And the reason why that view is growing in our world is because a lot of us who were raised believing that America was a Christian nation founded on Christian values, we can no longer reconcile our Christian faith with the dark political forces that control our world. We don't know how to interact with that, so we just sort of, the temptation is to push away. Oh well, God's sovereign. And then there are those of us who are tired of the bureaucratic, dishonest, self-interested gridlock that is American politics. It is. I've had some people look at me and say, 
you're preaching on politics? You crazy? I even hear the hint of, well, Jesus didn't worry about this stuff. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. Why do you guys think that people have warned me against preaching on politics? Like, honest feedback. It's divisive. It's divisive. Do you think that that is a good reason not to address politics? Why? Because the Bible's divisive. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a holy sword. Not like a literal sword where he cut, you know, but like... He, he, Jesus' message was divisive. Paul says that the gospel is the fragrance of death to those who are perishing and the fragrance of life to those who know Jesus. So I don't think that's a legitimate reason why you shouldn't address an issue because it's potentially divisive. And gosh, everything in our world is divisive today. Good grief. Everything's divisive. Eating local or eating in chains is divisive, you know. Any other reason why you think that uh, I've been warned not to preach on politics? Anything else? Idolatry for a lot of people. Don't mess with people's idols. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, upset the apple cart. It might, I've heard this one. It might hurt the church. What are we talking about hurting? If people are able to take a deeper dive in the truth... And part of the side effects of that is that it might hurt the institution of the church. Is it worth that deep dive? Is truth worth it? Is truth worth it? I think a big reason why people have told me not to preach on, I don't mean like hundreds of you or something, but like a few people, a couple of preacher friends. This is an emotional subject. And whether we like it or not, We think with our feelings. We all think we're objective. That person's such an idiot. We think with our feelings. We think with our feelings. And so I think as a side note, something that might be helpful to remember is this. Whenever you're in an interaction or hearing a sermon and your blood pressure is rising... Just recognize at the same time, your objectivity is drowning. Just know that. In the heat of the moment, you may not see that. But just remember that. Okay, my blood pressure is rising. That means I might have a blind spot. So I just need to, need to back up, count to ten, stick my head in a, in a bucket of water, something like that. Was this what Jesus was doing? Avoiding controversy? Was he avoiding controversy? I mean, do we see that pattern in Jesus' ministry? He called these same religious leaders a brood of vipers. That's an old, that's like a King Jamesy way of saying, you guys are a bag of snakes. What if I said that to your Bible study? You guys are a bag of snakes. Well, thank you, Pastor Chris. So encouraging. What is Jesus doing here? Because this is a hot political issue that Jesus finds himself standing in the middle of and in the heat of the moment he has to speak with wisdom and truth truth let's look at what he says verse 20 so they the scribes and the Pharisees 
watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So remember the context here. Jesus is not giving a general sermon on politics. He is responding to people who are trying to trap him. He's responding to people who are trying to destroy his ministry. That's their agenda. Their agenda is not truth. Their agenda is to upend Jesus' ministry and defeat him. That's what their agenda is. They want to brand Jesus as a revolutionary against Rome. I want you to note how inflammatory and emotional some of the words that they use are. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes or tribute to Caesar? Is it in the Bible? Well, the obvious answer is no. There's no verse in the Bible that commands people to pay taxes to a foreign foreign pagan government. So they're trying to trap him. These guys are pretty smart. Does God endorse, they're asking, giving money to a foreign government that is occupying the promised land and persecuting God's chosen people? Does the Bible command that? That is an emotional question. The wrong answer to that question will make many enemies of Jesus. The right answer to that question will get Jesus killed. It'll get him killed. You might say, well, what's the point? I mean, what's the big deal? He was going to be killed anyway. No. Jesus had to go to the cross an innocent man, not as a political insurrectionist. He had to go to the cross not guilty of any sin, which is why it is so incredible that Pontius Pilate in Luke 23, 4 said, I find no guilt in this man. Almost prophesying over him that he is righteous, yet he had him crucified anyway. And so the righteous Jesus went to the cross not because he voted for the wrong president or the wrong candidate. He went to the cross because he fought against the demonic forces, some political in our world, that leave us ensnared in sin and addiction and meanness and ugliness and all the things that are wrong with this world. Everything from uh, scratching somebody's car and not telling them about it to walking into a mall and shooting and stabbing people. All of that stuff, Jesus bled and died for. All of it. All of it. All of it. Is it lawful to pay tribute? And then that brings up the word tribute. Tribute. Tribute was something a little different than taxes, than just taxes. We pay taxes. Tribute was the way that a foreign government, a superior government, would go into an inferior nation and say, pay us money as tribute. And when you pay us money, you're admitting that you are nothing on your own and you need us to survive. You are dependent on us. Well, to any, the most humble Jew would have rejected that notion. We depend on Yahweh, our God. 
And you're telling us that we need to pay taxes to Caesar as an admission that we need him and we depend on him? I mean, there's a lot of Bible you can bring to that argument and say, no way, we should not pay tribute to Caesar. But that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus did. This isn't a message on taxes, by the way, just so you'll know. Um, This was risky. Again, if Jesus says no, he's immediately guilty of treason because there were many people who were listening and all you needed was two or more people to say, yep, he said this, and then boom, dead. That's how the judicial system worked back then. Two witnesses, that's all it took. That's all it took. The only alternative that Jesus has given is to speak in a black and white matter on an issue that is so, so gray. Yes or no, Jesus. We're not interested in nuance. We're not interested in complexity. It's a yes or no, cut and dry answer. Give it to us. No, 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 no. We don't want to hear your explanation. Just a yes or no. Well, Jesus wasn't going to submit to that trap. It was a far more complex issue than a cut and dry yes or no issue. And this should remind us that we should not allow ourselves to be bullied into a corner to give yes or no answers on issues in our world that are very, very complex. Very complex. I'm thinking about party affiliation. Party affiliation isn't simple anymore. Because both parties, for a lot of believers, have values that we reject And both parties have values that we like, that we align with. Party affiliation isn't simple anymore. People used to think along the lines of good guys and bad guys, depending on your tradition, emotion. It's not that simple anymore. I think about the Black Lives Matter movement. I think about racial injustice and the question of police brutality. These aren't simple questions anymore. Even if you bring up the question, should we provide police officers more training to prepare them for the complex issues that their job requires as armed servants of the law, even to bring that up with some people would brand me as a hater of police. There's no simplicity here. There's no complexity here. It's either you hate police or you love police, one or the other. I won't be bullied into that corner. As a matter of fact, I think that because police carry so much responsibility, we should do our very best to make sure that these servants of the law are fully and thoroughly trained, not just tactically, but emotionally. They are under tremendous duress in their jobs. I know a lot of police officers. And it is a dehumanizing job. And so I'm not going to stand up here and say there are some cops that are good. Because the implication is is that most are bad. In the same way, I'm not going to say some black people are are not criminals or some white people aren't racist. I'm not going to make comments like that. Those are preposterous, judgmental comments that don't take into account the complexity of our nation's history and our unique ethnic history as a country. These are questions that require thinking. These are questions that require dialogue, civil discourse. These are questions that require us to read books, not just stare at CNN or Fox News all day long. The economy is a complex issue. 
Universal health care is a complex issue. Global terror is a complex issue, as we saw just last night in New York. These are all complex issues. I am not in any way saying that it's okay to not have a firm position on these issues. I am admonishing you that your firm position better be based in being thoroughly acquainted with the nuance and the complexity of these issues first. Beware of a pharisaical spirit which rejects nuance and settles for good guys and bad guys. Beware of that. Beware of that thinking inside of yourself. Beware of that. Verse 23, render to God. But he, perce- but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. He shut them down. Don't for one second, my friends, think or assume that Jesus was apolitical, that Jesus didn't care about politics. He wasn't fighting with their worldly weapons because Jesus isn't of this world. Not only that, Jesus came to redeem this world. He came to redeem people. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Jesus wasn't going to allow the conversation to devolve into Jews versus Rome because he knew that God loved Rome. God cared about Romans. God cared about Greeks. God cared about people who were not Jews. If you read the book of Acts... For the first 15 chapters, this is the big debate. A a, a span of time in the book of Acts that lasts at least 10 years, maybe 20 years. The church is still unsettled for the first 10 to 20 years on whether or not they should bring the gospel to Gentiles, people who are non-Jews. That is the entire theme of the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts. This was tough for these spirit-baptized, Jesus-loving people to get. And it's tough for us to get today. It's tough for us to reconcile how Jesus can send missionaries into ISIS-held territories. And these men and women of God die for their faith. It's hard to imagine how God can love that blank that you and me consider a pariah. And Jesus hung on a cross and bled for. Jesus wasn't apolitical. He just didn't have the politics that we agreed with. How does this all shape out? That's another sermon. (laughs) That's a complex issue. That's a complex issue. But don't think that Jesus was apolitical and thought politics was non-consequential. He didn't allow himself, the point is, he didn't allow himself to be dragged into the messy and often rude political discourse and intrigue that is normal in our world today. 
He did not allow himself to be categorized. Jesus maintained a political worldview that was entirely Scripture-saturated, both in belief and in expression. We must have Spirit-baptized, Bible-saturated politics. And it's because of this that Jesus couldn't be categorized that probably led to frustration among his supporters and fury among his adversaries. He couldn't be pigeonholed. He couldn't be nailed down. He couldn't be cornered. He couldn't be branded. He couldn't be. Nobody could figure him out. Nobody could figure him out. It's not because he wasn't clear about his beliefs. It's because his beliefs did not allow him to fit comfortably in people's categories. If we are still judging people by Democrat and Republican or something else, then we are, we are way behind in this whole deal. We don't get it. It's not about Democrats versus Republicans. That's not what it's about. Do we have a spirit-saturated politic? Jesus' adversary as well was not a person or a human empire. That's the first fill in the blank in your bulletin. Jesus' adversary was not a person or a human empire. In John 18, verses 36, Jesus said this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's what my servants would do. My servants would look like you people, not you guys, renewal, but I mean like people that he was talking to, people that were angry and furious and unkind and vicious with their political views. He said, that's what my servants would look like. But I am not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And he says by implication, my servants are not of this world because they don't use the world's ways to engage in politics. My servants don't do that. They're different. My servants would have been fighting if that was the case. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. That's not my kingdom. My servants can't fight to keep me alive and make sure that I'm their political voice moving forward. My servants have to die to political ambition, to power, a love of it, a lust for it. Jesus' antidote to evil, my friends, wasn't rooted as a result in human strength and wisdom. So Jesus' adversary was not a person or a human empire, and Jesus' antidote wasn't rooted in human strength and wisdom. And this is why Paul could say in Ephesians 6, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not the Democrats. The devil. Not the Republicans. The devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers, against, I'm sorry, yeah, against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Against those spiritual forces. That's who our adversary is. That's who we're fighting against. 
That's who we're fighting against. That doesn't mean that we settle for a life of like monasticism. We go into prayer and, and fasting and church attendance and, 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 just, and just being loving, you know, sort of generally loving to people. Fighting against principalities and powers necessarily means speaking for those who can't speak for themselves. Jesus did it in this very text. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. People are not our enemies. People are our inheritance. Even the ugliest, unkindest people are are our inheritance. Really, Jesus' inheritance. They are not our enemies. So we pray for them. That's why Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you. They are not your enemy. They are God's inheritance. And He loves them. He loves them. He loves them. So we speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Demonstrated by this next several verses. Verses 45 through 46. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were political figures back then. They weren't just preachers. These were people who actually had authority to enforce Jewish law in their society. So there was no separation of church and state back then. Church and state were one. That's why Caesar was considered a god. Church and state were one and the same. They weren't separated. That didn't come along until 1,500 years in in post-enlightenment philosophy. They, They were one thing. And so Jesus, when he speaks to scribes and Pharisees, he's speaking to not just preachers, but political leaders. And he calls them out publicly. Publicly. He says, beware of them. They like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces. I'm so thankful that modern-day politicians aren't like that. I'm so thankful. Praise Jesus. Um, I'm so thankful they don't have false agendas and uh, objectify us just to get our votes and use our, use, our, use our beliefs to get power. I'm so glad they don't do that. I am not serious right now. Okay, so beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Beware of that impulse. Beware of that. Don't be naive, Jesus is saying. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. And he says, they also devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. I'm so glad that we don't live in a country where people's lives are objectified where poor people and uh, uh, oppressed people are taken advantage of and where politicians don't say things just to get us excited. Again, I'm just kidding. That's not the case, sadly. This is true in every age. Every age. He says, beware of these people who put themselves over those who were oppressed. Because the heart of politics, and again, politics is simply an organized structure to, bring, to help eliminate chaos in human society. God designed politics. Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth. He said to Adam and Eve. God invented politics. Politics cannot be first self-centered, concerned about my own care and my own benefits. 
Politics, godly politics, must first be concerned about people who are oppressed and speaking for them who can't speak for themselves. If you've got a problem with that, man, take it up with Jesus. I know it may not agree with common political thought, but this is Jesus talking here. So a couple of points I want to end with. He mentions long robes and how they love greetings and the best seats and the places of honor. Beware of the decadent lifestyle which promotes comfort over justice. The bleeding edge of politics must be justice, not my comfort. I'm not saying my comfort is not relevant. I'm not saying we should be okay with having crummy lives. I'm not saying that. But what should control the way we think about voting, the way we think about politics, what the heart impulse should be behind our political expression and our political activity should be making sure that those who are oppressed are spoken for. Beware of the decadent lifestyle which promotes comfort over justice. Make sure your politics aren't self-focused. God has placed us in this world to be the pulse of justice, love, service, and peacemaking. I'm doing a study on the 12 minor prophets right now. They're not minor because they're less important. They're minor because their prophecies in the Old Testament are shorter than the major prophets. The last 12 books of your Old Testament are the minor prophets. And even if you read the minor prophets and the major prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and all these minor prophets like Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Obadiah, there's this one theme that is threaded through that entire thing. God judged his chosen people that he gave the promised land to because they did not speak for the widow, the orphan, the poor, the foreigner, and the oppressed. This is God's chosen people. These are the people who have the Ark of the Covenant, that box that Indiana Jones found. They have that. These are the people who have the holy place where the presence of God appeared in fire and a pillar of cloud. These are the people that God led into the promised land and said, this will be your inheritance forever I give this to you. And he judged them and they were expelled from the promised land because they did not speak for the foreigner, the outcast, the widow, the poor, the fatherless. I'm not making political comments on these issues. I know some of those issues bring up, cause us to flare emotionally, especially that word foreigner. We're afraid of that word because we're thinking with our emotions. We're not thinking biblically. I'm not saying I've got clear-cut answers on some of these issues. I don't. I don't. But it scares me when people do have hard, clear-cut answers on these issues because I just don't think it shows a real allegiance to what the Scriptures are saying and a fear of God. It scares me. I'm saying we need to have more conversation about this. We need to talk about this. And there needs to be grace when people don't agree with us and we don't agree with others. These are gray issues. Don't allow yourself to be bullied and don't bully people into a corner on having a yes or no answer on these issues. They're not easy. They're not. So beware of the decadent lifestyle which puts 
comfort over justice. And they made this com- he made this comment about devouring widows' houses. Did you know that Jesus is looking for more than a well-formulated vote this November? Jesus is looking for aggressive goodness from his people. Aggressive goodness from his people. It's easier to vote and feel noble about the vote that you cast than to actually do something. It relieves our conscience when we, quote, voted for the right person. And we feel ennobled in our anger when the wrong person gets an office. But what if the emotional energy we put into trying to figure out who should be the next president, we put into trying to figure out how to cure society's ills? Do we have relationships with unwed mothers who are considering abortion? Do we know anybody like that? Do we, even, do we reach out to these people and serve them? Do we invite them into our homes? What about families with incarcerated loved ones? Men and women who are gradually being dehumanized in a a correctional system that is broken, almost beyond fixing, some people would say. Are we going to go visit these people in prison? Because Jesus said, if you do that, you visited me in prison. Are we going to be active or just rest in our laurels and take comfort in the fact that we voted the right way. A man named Charles Drew said this, I remember well the day that some law students in my congregation came to me following a sermon on the right of the unborn. They said to me, We agree with you, but what are we to do for the pregnant woman who cannot or will not raise their children? Their concern began a process that culminated in the creation of a crisis pregnancy center and a number of local shelters for unwed mothers. We must forever be asking, Drew went on to say, how can we commend the good, the just, and the merciful reign of our king if we ourselves are not demonstrating it? How can we commend the good, just, and merciful reign of our king if we ourselves are not demonstrating it? I speak to you among you today. I am convicted by this. I do little. I do little. And if you're convicted by this too, and you want to repent like me. And I mean that with all sincerity. I'm not trying to use you know, humility or transparency to control you. I'm just being really vulnerable right now. I'm really convicted by this. If you have an interest, a real interest, and don't email me right now because that's just emotional. Throughout this week, I want you to pray and think about this because I want to be a part of something beautiful that God uses to actively and personally reach people who are oppressed. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I need your help. We need each other's help.
And so I want you some t- I want you to pray about this. And if you're as convicted by this as I am, would you reach out to me and just shoot me an email? My email is Chris C H R I S. I don't see you writing. I'm kidding. Uh, Chris C H R I S at renewalmemphis.com. Chris at renewalmemphis.com. Reach out to me because I would love to have a conversation to start having conversations about what we can actively do as a church to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. I don't want to be a church that is guilty simply by association and non-action of devouring widows' livelihood. I want us to be active. Jesus, you are gracious and merciful. We do not deserve your grace. Our insolence and rebellion is profound. But Jesus, your grace is much more profound. Where my sin, where our sin abounded, Jesus, your grace superabounded. And we are grateful for this. And I pray, Lord, that our activity is political people, or should I say Christians who are politically active. I pray, Lord, that our activity would intersect with your heart. Help us to repent for doing nothing, for being disinterested. Help us to repent, Lord. Change us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the folks who reach out to me, that together you would kiss our efforts in such a way that our enterprise would be fruitful would be profound in bringing justice. And we pray that this would be all for your honor and all for your glory and all for your praise. The God Yahweh who desires that every mouth praise your name. In Jesus' name.